curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes, along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach? Then you should tune in to Terrifying Tomes of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshee, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Demchuk the author of the experimental queer horror novel Red X. Many readers think queer horror is just for queer people. I'm here to tell you it's not. We have the same dreams. We have the same fears. Red X tells the story of gay men who are being taken from their friends and family by an ageless supernatural being. But it's also my story, and the story of friends that I have lost over the decades. Join me in Red X as we explore my darkest fears together. Red X is published by Strangelight, an imprint of Penguin Random House, and is available at fine bookstores everywhere. The curator of horror, Chance Forshe here, to tell you about Ghost Eaters. Hey everybody, my name is Clay McLeod Chapman, and I am the author of Ghost Eaters. Ghost Eaters is all about a haunted drug. Pop a pill, see the dead, but once you start seeing the dead, the dead can see you. That is Ghost Eaters, and it's on shelves September 20th from Quirk Books. Want to get haunted? <laughs> Welcome to Dead Headspace. I am your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. Today, we are joined by a legend in the field, Mr. Edward Lee. Say hi, Lee. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm no legend. <laughs> that's, what, you know, that's what everyone says. They always think about all the guys, that, or the writers that came before them. Um, well, you are well-respected. I think you can't take that away from yourself. Yeah, I'm very fortunate in that respect. Uh, what We kind of tackled this last time. You were on, for the first time, on episode 141. For those that don't know, that is the Extreme Horror episode. Him, Rat James, him, me, and Lee, Rat James White, Christine Morgan, Kenzie Jennings, and uh, Christoph, uh, Christopher Triana. Um, that, was, that was a really fun one. Uh, that was a blast. Yeah, I so we kind of tackled it then, but I'm wondering um, if there's anything different that you may say with what got you into horror. No, I mean, pretty much the first um, kick in my creative ass was, like I said last time, uh, I got the I had the privilege of watching uh, the original Outer Limits when it first aired in 1963. And I was uh, seven years old. And 
what you have to understand, I mean, you have to be my age to get it because back then there wasn't uh, television and movies were kind of spotty and, and, you know, uh, you know, this, they had twilight zone, which was a great show, but it was, you know, it was a, a half hour show and it, it had a much lighter edge than um, than Outer Limits. But when I saw Outer Limits uh, in my living room in 1963, it blew my mind. And it was like a depth charge going off in every living room in America because people couldn't believe it, that something that, you know, terrifying was on television. Um, now, I, I try to explain this to younger people today and they'll watch it. But, you know, they don't have the, the benefit of being seven years old in 1963 and seeing this stuff. Um, the younger people have all been marinated in, you know, CGI and you know, super multi-million dollar effects. Mm. Um, there was no CGI back then. And it, it was all the, the effects were practical. And they were all, I mean, every single cylinder of the show hit perfectly. It was terrifying, and uh, that that sunk into my warped brain, my little my little brain, and warped me. And uh, I still can remember right now, even uh, however almost sixty years ago, when I was sitting in my living room, scared shitless, watching the show, because the monsters. It was all every week was a new monster, and these monsters kicked ass. Brennan, Brennan, jump in, bud. So, Lee, you said that, you know, you, you almost, well, I don't want to say you compared it to the Twilight Zone, but you said, like, this is, you know, the next level. Um, what what was it that, you know, really kind of made the Twilight Zone and, you know, other programs that came before The Outer Limits uh, seem tame in comparison? Well, well, it was the effects. Uh, for one, it was like the, the Outer Limits was ballsy. You know, they're putting some seriously scary monsters on the TV screen. Now, you know, this is no no cut to 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 Twilight Zone. That's a historically more important show. But it, you know, it was it was shorter, and a lot of the a lot of the episodes, some were humorous, and um, you, you know, not they didn't have the hard edge that uh, Outer Limits had. And same thing with um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. That was a great show, but especially the one with uh, uh, Robert Duvall with, with hair, and he has a severed head in, the, in an ice bucket. Now, that, that, was, that was pretty cool, but, you know, that was a half-hour show, and most of them were, like, on the amusing side, not in-your-face, scare-the-crap-out-of-you horror sci-fi-ish horror like like outer limits it was all about the monsters but but not 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 even just that every, all every other aspect of filmmaking was done to perfection in the outer limits um every the sound effects the 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 lighting the direction the stories were brilliant they were mind-blowing stories they had one about an an alien prisoner exchange now why couldn't i think of that that sounds awesome. I mean, I mean, there were so many things. There was this one called Xanti Misfits, and it was about ants that were like this big. Yeah. 
and they had faces like little twitchy faces and they, they come out of a spaceship and they, they kill Bruce Dern who looked like he was about 20 years old. And uh, then the noise they made, it's indescribable, but it was the scariest thing I'd ever heard in my life to that date. And, and I, I, another thing about that episode, I, I specifically remember it. And I know my, my mother ran out of the room I was sitting on the floor blubbering and even my father was, was disturbed by it. And he fought the Japanese in world war two. So it, this was a hard hitting show and you, there was nothing like it on television. And, and that, that smacked me right in the brain. And I, I'm sure lit a creative fuse in me. Yeah. Um, be, being that scared was, it was terrifying and fun terrifying and fun that's a perfect way to put it like that's that's the best horror that kind of sticks with you and keeps you thinking about it long after the tv gets right. turned off or the book gets closed exactly. so i think we can we can all agree here that uh your writing certainly pushes the envelope in a lot of the same ways that uh you know you're describing this show doing um in in the 1960s so i mean was that how did you uh kind of incorporate that influence when you started writing well, I don't know. That's really hard. I didn't start. I didn't start writing until I got out of the army. I was about 20, 21 years old. Um, I, I hadn't started reading horror until late. Uh, you know, when I was in, you know, uh, junior high, I, I remember we read Edgar Allan Poe and all that cool stuff, but I hadn't read, um, for instance, Lovecraft. I'd, I, I, I was unfamiliar with Lovecraft until about 1978 when I read, uh, I was in Germany and uh, I saw this, this book sitting in the remainder bin and it was, it was called The Best Ghost Stories and it was by the hardcover by Hamlin Press and it had rats in the walls in it. And that's the story that I, I read first by Lovecraft. And that's like the kick in the balls. That's one of the most terrifying stories I've ever read. And a lot of other authors have, have said that. I think Harlan Ellison said that was one of the scariest stories he ever, he ever read. And I, I agree with him. It was, it, was, it, was, it was so unlike anything else. You know, even Poe, Poe was wonderfully demented, but uh, back you know, back in those days when Lovecraft was writing, most of horror fiction was just kind of tame ghost stories. And I hadn't read many of those, but then I read this guy Lovecraft. And, and when I first when I first read the story, I thought that Lovecraft was still alive. I didn't know he'd been dead for God knows how many, 50 years or something. But, but uh, that was a big uh, influence to me. That that kind of lit a creative fuse that told me, God, it must be a lot of fun being a writer. And there are other uh, other examples of that in my life. I've told this story many times, but there's a guy, he won the World Fantasy Award, uh, the late uh, Brian McNaughton, who wrote, um, he made a living as a writer, writing like truck stop porn novels just just for money you know to, to pay the rent 
And in between each porn, he, he would write a book a week sometimes. And he would, uh, in between, he would work on this, what he called his magnum opus of dark fantasy. And this was in the early 80s. And um, I guess in 2006, he finished his book or 2003. I'm not sure when, but he won the World Fantasy Award for his collection called uh, Throne of Bones. But um, he wrote books in, in the late 70s. And like I said, a lot of it was it was like kind of junk porn. But McNaughton had a way of, of something about his style. He, he wrote good porn. It was, you know, entertaining porn, you know, less I don't want to say less smutty, but it was just more readable. But then he wrote another book called, his publisher told, uh, he, he told me the story. His publisher wanted a horror novel because, you know, Stephen King was big now. You know, he was coming onto the scene. So they wanted their own. Uh, the, the publisher was called Carlisle Communications, and they wanted a, a horror a horror novel. So Brian McNaughton wrote one in a couple of weeks, and it's called Satan's Love Child, but it has nothing to do with Satan or love child children. But um, it's actually a great modern uh, kind of angle on Lovecraft's Dunwich Horror. Ooh. And when I when I read that, I was I was mind boggled. I thought, God, this is really good stuff too. Like it, it must be a blast to be a writer. I, I gotta maybe I should be a writer. You know, Brennan, put a put a bookmark uh, or bookmark or whatever it's called in the, in this section. Yeah. yeah, put a pin in this one because I want to not get off of one thing. <clears throat> um, Lee, do you know who Jim Marshall is? He's at a scares that care with uh, Mark Saber Saber at times. I, I've heard the name, but I don't. I'm okay. So I bring him up because he is uh, super knowledgeable in it's like 1920s and in to 1940s literature. Well, anyways, he was talking. I picked him in Mark's brain the only time I went to scares of care last year, and I picked their brain for like two days. They have. Just they they are the ones that have this section of old paperbacks that all the authors go to to buy at scarce. And um Jim was saying that GIs in World War II were fascinated by Lovecraft because basically, from my understanding, it was kind of a distraction. It was so different. And you know what they're facing, they want to get their minds off of that. And what they would do with the paperbacks is they would when they were done on the page, they would tear it, give it to the next guy because supplies were limited. So they would just read books that way. Um, I was wondering if you're, if you happen to know with your father being a GI in world war two, do you know of anything that is kind of maybe sounding similar to your dad's experience or are you unfamiliar with most of what he's All I know that that's a good question. And I was unaware of the GI GI's, Reading Lovecraft during the war. That's I, I didn't that's know cool. until then either. That's cool as shit. Yeah. But I, I don't, you know, I regrettably I don't know what my father read in in World War Two. He, uh, he he was in uh he enlisted in the Marines I think six months after Pearl Harbor. Hmm. And he probably wasn't thinking about books. I, I'm sure he probably had a 
a pinup or two, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what he read. That's, I remember later in life, he did read uh, World War II novels. So. My uh, paternal grandfather, he was, uh, he was a Navy boy in World War II. He was in the Pacific Theater. Um, yeah. I asked my dad, I asked him what he knew about him. My, my grandfather didn't say anything. Um, unlike my maternal grandfather, who did talk a little bit about Korea when he was alive. Um, is there any story that you're willing to talk about that you're aware of talking about that your father told you? Or was he pretty tight lipped too? like my grandfather? No, he, he, he was like a lot of the guys were. <clears throat> they didn't talk about about the war he didn't yeah. that's i don't blame him that's um probably not what you want to talk about when you go through that yeah that makes sense and then um your experience you were in between wars right late 70s so you're you're well, i was i was cold war and that you know that's not a real war yeah we we were just uh i was in the the first armored division in germany and our job was to plug the holes in case the Russians invaded Western Europe. What does that mean, plug holes? What's that? I mean, you know, the, there's this actually a big valley called the Fulda Gap, and that's where the Russians would, the Soviets would have come in in mass, and they had like five to ten times more tanks than we did. So we were pretty much, you know, cannon fodder if that had ever happened. But, uh, Fortunately, I, uh, that didn't happen, and I lucked out, and I didn't, you know, I never had to go to war, but I honor anyone who did. Yeah, man. Um, I'm glad you weren't either. Um, did you pick up anything that you put into your, your books from your experience overseas? Uh, there's been some, some little details, army details that have been in shop, popped up in stories and books, but... Uh, trying to think i've never really written a dedicated novel about the army i, I, I don't think i can't remember that'd be but, interesting that'd be your take on on like a war um Brittany, you want to have the three little pigs which by the way i got three little pigs right there you have three little pigs back there that's <laughs> outstanding i i dig that <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we got a lot of pig stuff because, uh, as you know, we got a pig. She's five now. Um, I told my wife, I'm like, you watch. We have a lot, of, you know, house is going to be full of pig stuff. And she's like, nope, sure enough, it is, man. So that's one of them. <laughs> well, wait, one of you has a pet pig, right? Yeah, me. No, that's that's cool as shit. Yeah, she's uh, she's interesting. Um, never want to get another pig again there. They're smart enough to be uh, like a five. They're, they got the intelligence of a five-year-old. Yeah. Um, really nice creatures, just fucking annoying. <laughs> do they do? Do they poop in the in the house or? No, she's potty trained. We got her. They're really smart. Um, mm. We we got her spayed um, before she was one. And the reason for that is because at least with the mini breed, uh, mini pig breed is uh, their organs will, those organs will be susceptible to some weird thing of cancer. So uh, it's either try to breed them or, um, or get them spayed. Or so, neuter them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
three do little pigs. Do they but, eat a lot though? I mean, I'm a, what's the food bill for the pig? Surprisingly, not not, not a whole <laughs> lot because we uh, keep her on a steady diet of um, pellets specifically made for her, and we give her vegetables. We don't oh, spoil. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, if they get too fat, if you overfeed them, they'll get these fat rolls. And if they go over their eyes, you have to have surgery to you have to oh, get shit. them surgically like the fat removed. Or yeah. we had a friend that had a mini pig and he was an idiot with his. Uh, he would give her or him uh, sweet tea and the pig, that pig was wild. She uh, ate her bed. So he had to get surgery to remove all the stuff in because it was like it was like blocking everything. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Wow. Um, so this is the first time I read the pig by you. And so wait, hold on. I, I've got a question about the pig. Oh, we're what not do you do. What do you do when the pig eats your heroin? <laughs> I, I you, you go ape shit. It beat the hell out of it. Beat it with a stick and then beat it with a stick. It, it, it tried to eat you. This is the first time I've ever read the pig. And in one regard, it's the most fucked up thing I've ever read. In the other regard, it's a different kind of fucked up than like Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, um, which I always thought was like the most disturbing book I've ever read. Oh, for sure. The stuff, most of the hardcore stuff I write is is comedic. Yeah, well, it, it's now, definitely it, it, funny. I think I think the pig is pretty funny, but, you know. But but Jack Ketchum, you know, there wasn't a lot of humor in his books, but he could write humor when he wanted to. Sure. Um, I'm interested if you have any stories you want to share about you and Ketchum because your your paths kind of parallel for a while. Oh yeah, he was the first. I, pretty much the first horror writer I met and I became friends with. I, I wrote him a, a fan letter right after Girl Next Door came out in paperback. Nice. And he, he, I remember he he hated the paperback cover. It had I think you're going to say that. It's like I had a cheerleader on it. And, and what's, you know, it was just completely inappropriate. But... um we became friends. We corresponded and started talking on the phone for a couple of years. And then um, he gave me a blurb once, which was cool. And, and then one day we were both kind of out of the loop. We didn't know about the horror community. We knew there was a world fantasy convention, but we thought, well, that's fantasy. That's not horror. But then I remember seeing an ad for the world horror convention. So I called him up and I said, hey, Dallas, they've got this thing called the World Horror Convention. <clears throat> and it's in Nashville. We should go. So we did. We we went to Nashville. I think it was 1992. And that was our first exposure, really, to, to uh, other horror writers. And it was a complete blast. So where I met, you know, a lot of the people I met there, I'm still good friends with. That's awesome. That's really cool. Brennan, take us away, sir. Well, one thing oh, I'll yeah. say that uh, when I when, when the convention was over, it I was getting in a cab going back to to the airport, and it occurred to me then that I'd, I'd eaten no food for the whole convention, that the only calories I'd consumed were Heineken. <laughs> and it's like, I'm just sitting there in the cab, you know, hung over and thinking, what a fucking loser. But um, 
what the hell? It was a great convention. It was, uh, I met uh, tons of people there and they're all still good friends. I bet you weren't the only drunk one there, man. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. You see, Dallas and Ketchum could hold his better than me. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, so I, I I would love to dive into um, really the whole trilogy. I've always kind of held, and you know, I, I I've I've had people disagree with me on this, but I've always kind of held that as far as horror is concerned, um, if you can take all the you know horrifying supernatural elements out of a story and still have it be a good story, I mean that's generally what works for me, and. I was, you know, moderately surprised to find that's exactly what this one is, especially the arc over the three books. Mm. I love the way they tied together. And um, if there's a question here, I, I kind of wonder, you know, because this has been out since 1997, the first one anyway. How have people responded to it? I can imagine people getting, you know, turned off by the over the top elements, but missing out on what really amounts to an excellent horror story. Well, thank thank you for that. Uh, but uh, my, my what I recall is the response to it was was very positive, and, and people were were outraged, but in a positive way. I mean, it was one of those things I wrote, like my novella header, for instance. I wrote as an exercise because I didn't think it would get published, and the same thing with my novel, The Big Head. I, I thought you know probably nobody's going to publish this because I'm just doing it for fun. And, you know, I kind of had, you know, when you consider the first line of the pig, which I think it was <laughs> sissy picked up the shot glass full of pig semen and shot it back neat. I thought that, um, you know, that, that no, nobody's going to publish this. But uh, God bless Dave Barnett because he published them all. And uh, uh, that kind of. You know, gave gave me some credit credibility as a hardcore horror writer, publishing stuff that I thought would never get published. And so it was, but it was all, even if it didn't get published, I I wouldn't regret writing them because it was so, it was so fun, and I I learned a lot. You learn you learn stuff with everything you write, especially when you're younger like that. Absolutely. Um, as far as like the mob is concerned, in it, I thought that was really interesting. Is there is there any specific interest with the porn business in the seventies that you really clung to, or is this as far as like influence, or is this kind of just like oh that that sounds like a neat thing to pick apart? Well, no, it was it was a, somebody my age. I was born in nineteen fifty seven. Um, <clears throat> if you were living in where I lived in the I lived, I lived in Bowie, Maryland, near Annapolis, near D.C. And there was this rite of passage thing that every guy that age, once you get to be 16 or so, or 16, 18, you go to Washington, D.C. and go to the, the porn district. And there's another one in Baltimore was called The Block. And it was full of strip joints and, um, and porn stalls. Back in those days, they had these things called called loops there were like film short film loops 10 minute film loops that you go in and in the cd booths it's really subversive and you put quarters in and and you watch a screen in a booth 
<laughs> like like a closet pervert. <laughs> and uh, so that was like a, that was a rite of passage for anyone my age in that area. <laughs> and uh, you know, I found it. Uh, yeah, I found it fascinating. You know, I, I didn't become a porn addict, I don't think, but some of this stuff was, uh, it, it was fascinating because you start thinking, well, why would people do that? And then there was one, there were some things in Baltimore where, God, man, there was, uh, you know, bestiality movies and real gross out stuff like that. And of course, you know, what, what's erotic about that? Nothing. But, you know, there's a demented part in all of us, a little smidgen of something, a little pervert in all of us, probably, that you see a hot chick and a horse on a piece, you know, on a, on a photo on a booth wall, you're going to have to go see. <laughs> and so that's what, you know, and I, and I don't think that anybody... It's really dishonest to say that if you if you if you walk into booths like that, you're a pervert, you're you're sexist, you're you're an asshole, you're a, a you're a fucked up in the head. Am I allowed to cuss here? Yeah, all you want, man. <clears throat> um, but it was it was like I said, it was a rite of passage, yeah. and this was stuff that I didn't you know I didn't know about. I didn't know that existed. And wham! I mean, actually, I was I was. <laughs> I, uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, me and a, a friend of mine went to D.C. This this porn porn district. And we went into a <laughs> we went we went into a, a a strip joint called the Cocoon Club, and it was the crappiest looking place. And I don't even think it was. I don't even think they had strippers there. We went upstairs. Sat down. We're 16 years old. We get served beers, <laughs> and there's this movie. There's a project, you know, a, a movie screen on the wall <clears throat> showing, you know, grainy porn movies. Wow! And then we're sitting there, and and a, a, a Washington D.C. police officer walks in, and we're thinking we're 16 years old. And we're, we're thinking, oh, my God, if we get caught, we're ruined. You know, our parents will kill us. You know, and please, please, God, let this cop leave and we'll never come here again. Well, the cop left. And we, we were back the next week. So uh, I, I hope God will forgive me. He's supposed to be, <laughs> he's supposed to be all, all forgiving. So I'll put him to that test. There's a there's a line I believe it's in um, a Ouija pig, um, and I I don't know how <laughs> I'm not sure how to describe it without spoiling like at least book one, but it talks about um, the kind of primal nature of of man that you know cavemen um, sure. yes, and yes. the way they would um, you know the the way that they would find some of the things that are on the reels in that house. Um, enticing i suppose and you know all i can think is i've i've got a, a treeing walker coon hound in the next room and he is the softest he sleeps on the couch for 23 hours a day but somebody comes to the door and you can see the wolf in him you can see you know generations sure? and generations yeah. and generations back and i think that's absolutely true 
of humanity is, you know, all of us on the surface, we see all of these things listed, all of these different reels and all of these horrific things. And we, you know, demean them and rightfully so in a lot of cases, but at the same time, you can kind of trace elements back to, you know, our more, our, our baser nature. Uh, and I just thought that was such a brilliant little commentary it's, there. You know, the, the human race wouldn't, wouldn't have survived. If it wasn't <clears throat> bloodthirsty, vicious, and inclined to commit rape, you know, I mean, the National Organization of Women probably won't like me saying that, but that's what that, that that's how you that's how the human race uh, survived all this time. You attack the next tribe because they're smaller and weaker than you. You have you drag their women down into the dirt and have sex with them, and they get pregnant. Um, you know, you war with everybody to take their stuff, take their livestock, burn their houses down, kill them so they can't kill you. That's the hallmark of this wonderful human race. Hmm. And that's, you know, it's, it's part of survival instinct. And as we've evolved, um, I guess we've maybe devolved a little too, but um I think we're getting better. We're not doing as much of that as, as we used to. It's uh, it's it's declined a little bit, but th there is that kind of <clears throat> um, intelligence, you know, uh, related ethics of <clears throat> this is not right, you know, and we do know better than this. Uh, but also the fact that it's you know buried, but in 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 the bloodline that there are you know, millennia of human beings that survived um, in the, with these measures. Uh, you're absolutely right. By being bloodthirsty mm. and horrible rapists and murderers. That's why we're here. Yeah. That's why we're still here. And, <laughs> and I mean, that's, that's almost a facet of horror in and of itself is being a, you know, uh, a 21st century human being, you know, uh, knowledgeable, educated and in polite society and being unable to control those those impulses. I mean, what's what's more horrifying than that? Yeah, there's still there's still a little caveman stuff going on in our genes, probably in, in a lot of us. And uh, that's where you get your serial killers and, and uh, not to bring up pot. Well, I won't talk about the war but you know horrible stuff that goes on in 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 the world it, it's it's because of that and yeah it's because of bad upbringing to uh, a lot of people if you look at these serial killers a lot of them had horrible childhoods but um i think there's a little kernel in all of us that that has a capacity for I don't want to say murder and atrocity, but you know, could might be able to, to to do that in a situation where you had to. I guess I don't know. Yeah, I also am tiptoeing around that. <laughs> um, it, capacity, I think, is the right word. Patrick, weigh in. I was just going to say the American. Let's Titan get all three of us canceled here. I was just going to say the American <laughs> Titans. Uh, you know, um, starting with Cornelius Vanderbilt and. Uh, uh, Rockefeller, um, all those guys, JP Morgan, they were fucking vicious, man. There was like four, four guys in America that had like more money together than the 
top 50 nowadays and they controlled everything, but they didn't get there by being nice. They were smart and bloodthirsty. They break your. Oh yeah. They left people to die. Joseph Kennedy senior was a, you know, he owned tenements. He didn't give a crap about those people. He just wanted their money. Um, you gotta, I guess people gotta suffer if, if you want to be rich, I guess. But back then, you know, those were the robber barons and the rest of us were the little people. Yeah, I mean, you still get it today with some of the big wigs, but it's, you know, you sure. can't get you can't get good without bad. Yeah. It's so uh, the human the human condition is very interesting. I'm wondering what uh the response has been for Ouija Pig. What's that? What is the response been for Ouija Pig? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Oh, what what has the response been for Ouija Pig? Well, I, I really it's only been out a little while. I don't know. I think it's pretty good. Um I don't know. The funny thing is when you write a book, it goes out the door and you forget about it because you gotta do the next one. It's like it's like your kid going to college. Okay, get the, get the hell out of here. Go to college. Leave me alone. You Done you don't you. you don't have any social media, and I'm curious if that's more of a leisure than anything, or if it is a pain in the ass at times to not have a beyond email. If there's not an immediate way to connect with some people, uh, I, I see. You know, I'm old fashioned. I'm a dinosaur. I'm an old fuck. <laughs> I don't. I, I still don't really even know what Facebook is. What what is it? It's it's it, you talk to people. Well, I yeah. can talk to people on my regular email. I yeah. don't need some some Facebook feed with people telling me spreading jokes that aren't funny. They're telling me what they ate for lunch. <laughs> Yep, that's pretty much. I mean, my, my time's more valuable than that. I, I I got books to write. I don't have to be dicking around with that stuff. But um, I will say that uh, one of my publishers, um, K. Trap Jones, who published the Pig trilogy, I, I he made a, a, a kind of a Facebook for me, and I go on it like once a week and tell people what I'm doing and. Stuff like that. Dave Barnett of Necro did the same thing. He would send me, you know, if, if, if readers had questions, he would he would email me the questions. I'd email answers back, and then he'd put them on the Facebook because I didn't know how to. That's pretty damn funny because a lot of writers I do see get caught up in stuff that ultimately don't fucking matter. And I, I'm not I'm not uh, innocent in that either. Um, no, life's life's too life's too precious. To read about what somebody had for lunch. I'm getting caught up in trivialities of who mm. thinks this. Like, there's a lot of opinions out there, and a lot of people get act like there's personal attacks with them if, if they don't like what someone says. And, yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. A lot of people mm. will get a lot more written uh, if, <laughs> if they stayed <laughs> off of it, for sure. I think it's a double-edged sword because it's like, you know, a lot of newer writers, you know, and Lee, you have the uh, benefit of, you know, your career spans back decades. I mean, you've got uh, books in hands and you've got a name made for yourself. And a lot of the writers coming up already kind of have a high opinion of your work. But a lot of the new writers do kind of, you know, myself included, depend on uh, a social media presence to sell books. Oh, yeah. And it's it's this it's 
you know, it's it's a responsible thing to do. That's if you care about your work, you do that. I mean, mm-hmm. I care about my work, but I'm, I don't know how to do that crap. You know, these younger guys, they're blowing me out of the water. They're on online. They must be online half the day doing social media stuff. Yep. And there's a benefit to it because it promotes your work. You know, in the past, uh, I've always said, well, it's the publisher's job to promote my work. Well, not really. I should take more responsibility <laughs> with that. I should take 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 a hand in it. But I, I, like I said, I don't know how. I'm a crabby old man, and I, I I don't I don't want to screw around with all this this media business. I just want to write books. You know, I get it. Totally it's get my, it. My my job is to write books, not to tell people what I had for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if you've you know gone most of your career not needing that social media presence. Like if you have a certain amount of time, um, you know, set aside each day that's dedicated to writing. If you all of a sudden have to like take an hour, a a block of that time and say, this is my time to sit on Facebook. This is my time to sit on Twitter and interact with people. I can see that being a fucking nightmare. Um, To to, to a lot of people, somebody like me, that would be a giant pain in the butt. It's that would be an outrage, but other people groove on it. That's mm. what they do, and they do it well. Mm. And these younger writers coming up in the the new wave of horror—they're—they're—that's what they're doing. And they're—they're they're not only good writers; they're great technically with with uh, all that media shit. That's <laughs> pretty well said, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, and I mean, I think it's it just kind of comes to, you know, like, for example, your writing time could be, you know, this much actual writing, this much editing and this much, you know, sending emails to, you know, publishers taking care of like behind the scenes stuff. And I think it's just different now where, you know, part of that behind the scenes stuff that's built in there is that kind of social media, like I got to go online, I got to do a book giveaway, I've got to you know, share this, you know, sure. post about my synopsis or whatever. Um, I, I, I think it's built in there, but if you operate in such a way that you don't already have that time set aside, it just, it certainly seems like a, a nightmarish inconvenience. It is. And it's like I said, it's, it's, it's part of what a modern writer has to do. And I just don't do it very well. Um, it, 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 you know, you, you, you got to be responsible, do everything you can to promote your work. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't do that. Um, I, I don't really know how to do that. I'll just send the book to the publisher and hope that he does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes, that and make I think sense. that a lot of, um, you know, I feel like social media has become in the first step in word of mouth, but there's never going to be anything as valuable as, as word of mouth. So, I mean, if you've already kind of cultivated that over your career, you don't necessarily need that Kickstarter anymore. Um, like, you know, one of the very first things we said tonight was you've got a generation of writers, uh, very, very good writers who are, um, you know, revered and well-respected who cite Edward Lee as a huge influence on their work. And I mean, that's just, that's, that's invaluable word of mouth, if you will. Um, yeah, you that's, that's, that's terrific, and I'm 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 thrilled at that. But I, I also, the, I guess the social media is what amplifies the word of mouth 
the hundredfold. Mm. Um, and like I said, I don't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm a lazy old dinosaur. <laughs> Lee, I uh, saw a picture with you and uh, Dick Lehman. Oh, yeah. What a great guy. Yeah, it looked like it was from, looks like it's from the 90s. I was wondering if you got any like interesting stories about that because he he seemed like such a sweet person. Oh, he was he was like 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 Jack Ketchum. He was the greatest guy you could ever meet. He was a blast. I had many a beer with him, um, and uh, just uh, anything he would say about writing was was like a gift it was a, a valuable invaluable advice same, with him and Ketchum, the same thing they could be just talking about stuff off the top of their head about the genre and it's like wow this is this is priceless information and uh, these guys gave their gifts for free and it was uh it was just great hanging out with them it was a privilege and, and it sucks that they're both gone yeah, I, I wish I could hear what those are. Um, that's what this podcast is pretty much set up to do nowadays is just to capture useful stuff for, you know, generations to come or however long YouTube's on for and <laughs> podcasts. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. So I'm, I, I kind of want to ask this question, but I don't know how else to word it. So I'll just ask it the most basic way I know how is, uh, what have you oh, I'll answer it. I'll answer it. Uh, Twelve and a half. <laughs> that's a big oh, that's hand. Not what, that's not what you were going to ask. I'm sorry. What were? <laughs> no, that's uh, that's one of your characters, Theo. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Uh, I was going to ask what you've noticed that has carried over from when you started. Not <laughs> even trends, but just kind of what you've noticed with writers in in this genre and what has changed ultimately from when you started a few decades ago well you know i i if we're talking about extreme horror i've noticed i'm not criticizing what other authors do but it seems there seems to be a lot more you know very powerfully negative work um nihilistic stuff and I, that needs those stories need to be told too i i don't do much of that because for me i want horror to be a good time and i want it to take me away from the negative and so so i don't uh, i've written negative things before but most most of my stuff most outrageous stuff i've written is uh, it's stuff that you you can laugh at it's funny it's fun there's some stuff that uh, well, I don't want to use examples because they might think it's an insult, but but um, there's some stuff that's that's very negative, and it it it's kind of is depressing to me. But that's just me. I'm not saying anything. Not knocking these other authors. There there are some really great new authors out there that are are, are fascinating, and and have got. And they're young too. They're whippersnappers. They've got long, long time ahead of them uh, to write stuff. But yeah, the, I've, I've, what I've seen is a change in horror as, as stuff's more negative. Mm. And you know, there have been times when I've written, 
you know, unhappy endings in books, but I don't, I don't usually do that anymore. I want a damn happy ending. Exactly. It definitely makes sense. Uh, I, I think that all three of us can agree on this. And I saw a picture with you and this author that talking of like ones that are great uh, and hopeful. Uh, Jonathan Jans. Um, it's from I saw this oh. picture, picture of you and him is from 2015. But uh, he's awesome, man. He's such a nice guy. A great writer. Nice as, nice as hell guy. A fantastic writer, too. Yeah. Yeah, he actually uh, inspired Brennan, his debut book, uh, book, novella that came out last year. It was inspired directly from uh, one of Jans's books. Brennan, that's when you come in and start talking. Oh, I thought you looked like you were <laughs> plumbing the depths for your next question. No. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, as far as uh, we, we kind of went into this a little bit earlier, we were talking about social media and I think we exhausted that thing, but I, I'm curious about your, uh, your, your process, you know, cause you have been doing this since the eighties and you've got, it's over 40 books out by now, isn't it? Um, 52, 53, something like yeah, that. Yeah. That's, that's impressive as hell. So what is your, what's your process impressive like? if the books are good that I, I hope <laughs> they are. <laughs> well, and you know, before you answer, what's your process, which is, you know, just such a cookie cutter question. Like it's, you, you mentioned, you know, having, um, almost kind of happy ending that, that comedic thread running through. And I think that's so evident in, in, in the pig trilogy. It's, you know, it's, it's so weird to say this, but it just, it just feels like you were having the time of your life, writing These like you're, uh-huh. you know, throwing yeah. your head back and laughing. And there's such horrifying things in there that again, it, I almost feel like I'm insulting you by saying this, but no, no, it's that's, just so that's, evident in the prose. That's what I want. I mean, that's, yeah. what, that's, that's what I want. It's uh it needs at the end of the day, it has to be fun. I mean, if you look at the end, what happens to the guy? The guy at the end of the pig, he's about to get electrocuted, right? For yep. the murder he didn't commit. But it's still a fun, funny ending. You know? <laughs> yeah. So that's, it's, that's it's, the kind of stuff. It's I light. <laughs> it's like uh it's it it kind of the isolation and the over top. Yours tops this example, but it, in some aspects, it reminded me of Evil Dead, just uh, just way more like extreme. Well, I guess it kind of is like a cabin. Yeah. And it was, fuck, there's demon. Yeah. So maybe I was unconsciously ripping off Evil Dead, but uh, or, or doing my version of it. But uh, it was so much fun. I can't tell you. And as far as my process goes. That all changes when, as you get older, you know, mm. in the eighties, I was like, when, when you're in your twenties, what, what you want more than anything, if you're, is to, you want to be a writer, you want to get published actively, you want to do that, but you know, you also have to work a job on the side, otherwise you can't, you know, pay for anything. And then, uh, so that was what, my process was getting as much writing done every day before I had to go to my boring night watchman job. And, you know, the only thing I really looked forward to was, was writing. And then, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to become a, a full-time writer in 1997. 
And then all of a sudden, it's, you have the luxury. You don't have to go to work anymore. Hmm. So my process, maybe, you know, I would always try to write a, a thousand words a day. That was my, my thing. Um, and for like 10 or 15 years, that's what I did. And uh, then you get older. You know, I had some things in my family. Like my mother was dying and I was taking care of her off and on. And uh, it was hard to get writing done. So my, I had a kind of a, a, a period where I didn't produce very much. But now um, that's all over with. And I thought uh, uh, maybe last year I thought, well, maybe this is this is it for me. I don't, you know, you got to retire sometime. You can't just, the tank is going to empty sometime. And then, but then I looked at my notes and I, I have like ideas for 10 more years. Nice. Most, of them are, most of them are pretty good ideas. And, and the, the amazing thing to me, the thing I'm most grateful for is, you know, since last, uh, I moved last August and there's sometimes a thing with writers is every now and then you need a new creative environment. Well, I got a new creative environment and I started writing my ass off. And it was like, it was like I was 25 again, or, or, you know, I had that kind of creative energy still do. I mean, I wrote a couple thousand words a day. It's, it's great. Wow. So my process is kind of a pendulum and is, is coming back where I have as much, it feels like I have, maybe I'm exaggerating, but I have as much creative energy as I ever have. That's amazing. That's so cool. And that's, it's really, it's really a cool feeling to be, to be this old and to (laughs) suddenly feel invigorated like you did when, when you were in your twenties. That's great to hear, man. I love it. I love it. Um, All right. So, Patrick and I are both big believers in if you are a writer, uh, knowing knowing your history, you know, especially knowing knowing the genre and knowing who came before you, both so you can be kind of inspired by them, but also so that you can kind of learn from them and tread new ground. So I'm kind of curious whether they have published in 2022 or 1980. Who are some writers that you feel like a lot of uh newer writers would benefit from reading and knowing? I mean, anybody, anybody who wants to write horror needs to read Jack Ketchum. Um, Agree. You you have to, because that's important stuff. Um, You know, Richard, same with Richard Lehman, you know, he he wrote so many very, very entertaining books. And at the end of the day, it's about, it's about. It's not about turning the 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 horror novel into a literary event. It's about entertaining the reader. And, and, and Dick Lehman's books did that, and they, with 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 gusto. So uh, you know, I would recommend that uh, newer writers read those guys. But then people always ask me who I think is the best. Um, you know, living horror writer, and it's the answer is always the same. It's Ramsey Campbell uh, from England, and he's like a, just a brilliant prose writer, brilliant crafter of stories. And every sentence he writes 
is like a hallucination. I don't know how he does that, but uh, you know, I'd name him as the, the the greatest living horror writer, and the greatest horror writer of all time, of course, is is Lovecraft. And people don't will argue with that, you know, say he was a racist and all that. I'm talking about the influence of, he had on the genre. He was the Big Bang. He turned horror from you know, polite ghost stories to chaos, you know, to cosmic horror. It was, it was, uh, you really can't, can't describe it, but it, it's, it really did influence everybody. I've had writers tell me that, well, I'm not influenced by, by Lovecraft. They said, well, yeah, but some uh, other authors you, you are influenced by, Sure. Or influenced by Lovecraft. It's hard not to be unless you you lived mm-hmm. in a a closet or something and not read Lovecraft. I mean, look at Metallica's first album. They got a song called The Call of Cthulhu. It's they are the, his influence is everywhere, man. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you if you like they're they're I asked I had I had this this girl would cut my grass in the past. And I had a picture of Lovecraft on the wall. And he says, oh, who's that? Is that your father? And I said, no, no, that's that's H.P. Lovecraft. Have you ever heard of him? And she goes, no. Well, he invented the Cthulhu mythos. And he goes, oh, I've, everybody's heard of that. I play the yeah. games all the time. Everybody's heard of Lovecraft. All roads lead back to Lovecraft. I don't care what anyone says. Batman. Yeah. What's that? Batman. With... Um, oh, but- with Arkham, uh, the oh, Arkham sure, yeah, that's, that has a yeah. lot of uh, a lot of nods to Lovecraft. Yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've often wondered if uh, I don't know whoever wrote the I don't know who who wrote the Creature of the Black Lagoon, but I I'm, I wonder if that was influenced by Shadow oh. over Innsmouth. Yeah. Uh, I've never thought of that. Holy shit, that has to be. Yeah, I I, I like the idea of the fact that the majority of horror writers are going to, even if they don't know it, they're going to be indirectly influenced by Lovecraft and most of them directly influenced. Um, And it always, you know, I I hate to admit this to you, but I I just could never get into his writing. I I just, it never, it's not, it's not for everybody. Yeah. But I always held that it was just so monumentally interesting and impressive that a single man could craft the kind of mythos that you usually get from entire civilizations. Like to oh, me, yeah. that's, that's the legacy. Yeah. And think of what even, you know, a hundred years from now, there's still going to be Cthulhu mythos going on. Mm-hmm. And um, no question. You know, what Lovecraft did was uh, he kicked out the jams. It was, it was, he, he, he took cosmic science fiction dressed it in the clothes of gothic horror and then infused it into the reader. And it was completely different from anything else being written. You know, I'm a big, uh, you know, my second favorite horror writer next to Lovecraft is, is M.R. James. I knew you'd say that. That's, that's <laughs> Ramsey's favorite writer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Again, he's, he's, uh, acknowledged uh, uh, James in a lot of things. And he, he wrote a, Campbell wrote a really cool story called The Guide, 
which is uh, the, it, it's sort of about a guy going to a church where M.R. James had gone. And it's hmm. just the coolest, just the coolest. I mean, I wish I could get a thought of that. I wish I could be that smart. But um, yeah, M.R. James is, is, you know, if I had to name a, an author who's more rereadable than Lovecraft, it, it would be James because he, he was a linguist and he, he really had fun with the language. He's, everything he wrote was a celebration of the English language. Hmm. And, you know, he's called, critically, he's called the master of understatement. But there are, there are some pretty hard-edged images in, in, uh, in James. But he, he didn't go to the step that, uh, that Lovecraft did and, and make things cosmic. Um, you know, he was still a Victorian writer. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one, one story by James where he says... Uh, well, uh, uh, I'm from uh, a Victorian tree will will bear Victorian fruit because he was he was born in the time of Queen Victoria, mm, yeah. and you know that was go a lot of ghost stories. That's what people like the Gothic, the whole Gothic tradition. Nobody did it better than James, but he he. Uh, I, I would rank Lovecraft as more important because his fiction went further. Oh yeah. Yeah. My, my favorite Lovecraft story is the color of space. That, that's just, Oh, that's fantastic. And I think that was Lovecraft would often cite that as his favorite story of his. Yeah. I, I know that's, I think that's the one that really started blowing him up that or the mountain of madness. I can't remember what the mountain you know. of madness is of uh, the novella that, it's the quintessential Lovecraft story in that it defines the entire mythos. Yeah, it's an excellent story. A lot of the other stories, they just use bits and pieces. I know Guillermo del Toro wanted to do a movie based on that story. I really wish that that happens eventually. Oh, that, I can't think of anyone better for the job. That would, right. that would be, you know, thrilling. But it's mm. probably a hard sell. Yeah, yeah. Like it's all, it's all Arctic, you know. Yeah. It's going to look like the thing and he probably gets some pushback but he's well he's a, but he's also a powerful director and i hope he's gonna say you'd think he'd be at the part in, the point in his career where he could just kind of uh dictate his own projects i hope i hope that happens i hope i, mm. I would think so too because he's he's really is a brilliant director when we started out, we would kind of talk about film adaptations, what if scenarios with authors. We don't talk about that much anymore. Um, we don't, we try not to repeat most of our questions that often, but with your trilogy, going back to the pig trilogy, I'm really curious how that would turn out. Like would that even, I feel like that would kind of get an X rated. Oh no, no, it, it was, this, this is interesting, but in the late, like around 2009, <clears throat> some people optioned it. Oh, okay. And, you know, it was very, you know, you, you put, you don't show the pig, the girls, you know, doing that to the pig. Okay. You, you, you imply it or you have a shadow mm -hmm. on the wall and the pig's doing that. <laughs> um, stuff like that. It would be a great movie. It would be very easy to do. Like Scarface, but, right? The shower scene. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think 
Spielberg hasn't knocked on my door yet, but I'm waiting, <laughs> you know, he, yes. he'd, he'd be wise to do that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> That'd be really cool. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I almost like, um, the, the idea of using that amount of implication, um, almost kind of just leaped over my head because you don't, you don't turn the camera away. Um, <laughs> oh, one no. could argue you're incapable of turning the camera away. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, it's, it's, an, it's kind of a great, it's been on so many discussion panels and in our conventions is, you know, when do you leave things to the writer's imagination and when don't you? And, you know, so a lot of the newer writers say that it's, it's, it's a cop out to ever, uh, leave things to the reader's imagination. And, you know, I, I agree in a sense, because you know, the readers are paying for your imagination. Mm. But I think for me, it's a tactical thing. And just like it was not that I'm comparing myself to Lovecraft, but if you look at Lovecraft, nobody jockeyed leaving it to the writer's imagination or putting it in uh, the reader's imagination or and later putting it in the reader's face better than Lovecraft. Um, one example is uh, uh, Charles Dexter Ward, where mm. you see the you see the raiding party go into Joseph Kerwin's house, and then you hear screams and 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 Latin voices booming in the sky, and then these guys all come out with white hair, glassy eyed, and they never talk about what they saw. But then at the end, Doctor Willett goes down there with with a lantern. And we see what's in the pits. And we, he sees the, the Shoggoths and the shades that have been called up uh, by the warlock. And then the lantern goes out. But that, to me, that's the scariest, that's the scariest scene in horror. And that lantern went out because there's no light in there. He's under, he's a mile underground and he's in a, He's in a room full of monsters, and he doesn't know if they got out of the pit. That's so terrifying. To me, that was genius. That that's that's an example of when when you leave it to the reader's imagination, and when you don't. It's it's, it's a tactical situation. Sometimes you know, I I do uh, a lot now. Um, some some readers have complained that I. Uh, I leave things more things to the imagination than before, but then there's other things I don't, you know. And hopefully, the pig is proof, or the the Ouija pig is proof of that. Yeah, um, you know what? I'm I'm curious. Is there is there an audience bigger outside of the country, the U.S., or is is your main audience in the states? I think I I mean. I think I, my books sell better in Germany now. I, I have a, a pretty big following there. Hmm. Um, here, I'm. I'm. I think you know. I'm, I've been into this since 1982. I'm getting to be old news. That's the way it, it goes. It's out with the old and with the new. And there's a whole new wave of, of new writers, exciting new horror writers, making the scene. And I I think that's great. You know, you can push the old guy aside, but. <laughs> The, the old guy's not done yet. No, wait. I I'll mean, still, I'll still take him to school on occasion. There you go. Yeah, I, you should always keep everyone in mind. Not you, but 
I, I don't like the mentality of just new, 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 new. Um, I see that every now and then online, and I'm not a big fan of that myself. I won't speak for Brennan on that. Um, Brennan, you want to go to what are you reading? Yeah, let's do it. Lee, what are you currently reading? I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> I recently read, you all know who David Scow is. Oh, yeah. Of course. But, I mean, this guy, can you see this? It's yep. He's released a, it's called, um, I guess you can't see it, Weird Doom. It's a David J. Scow sampler, and it's stories from early in his career and then all the way up to now. And it even has some nonfiction in it that's 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 just absolutely fascinating. And some of the best some of the best stories, like maybe the best. All right, there you go. That's cool <laughs> as shit. Um, yeah, Scott gave me maybe, that. maybe the most unique ghost story I've ever read is the story that doesn't have a title. It's just the uh, it's the insignia of the gang. It's like a it's like a marking. You, if you haven't read it yet, you'll you'll know what I mean when you I get it. I haven't read it yet. Yeah, I bought two books from him on his his Facebook. He sells his books, signed books, and um, he threw this in there for free. So I thought that yeah, was it's awesome. it's a great book. And I also recently read. Um, see, I've I'd read his work in the way back when, but not all of it. Because that's the bad thing about being a writer, especially when you're trying to start out. You read a lot, but then you start to get published and you have to spend more time writing than reading. You have to spend your time forging your own success than reading someone else's. So a lot of uh, a lot of David Scow stuff I missed back then. But some of the stories I remember very well from the 80s and 90s. And then the ones that I didn't know he had this much material out there. Um, Fiction-wise, he's he's done a, a lot of screenplays, and a, he's a great one of horrors, you know, most important horror journalists, I, I think you could say. But then he 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 did. Uh, there's another collection called. Um, damn it! Seeing Lost, right? An- Lost Angels. Lost Angels, and it has a story in it called Brass, which is. The most mind-boggling occult horror story I've probably ever read. It's it's just, you know, the, the, this guy writes with his style is like, it's as direct as putting a cigarette in the reader's face. That's <laughs> putting it out in the reader's face. It's it's just a, a, a incredible style that doesn't let up. It goes goes for the throat, and. Uh, I'd recommend uh, anything by him. It's fantastic. And um, also I read recently uh, maybe uh, the best title in a long time by Matt Shaw called Come Shot. (laughs) (laughs) It's about as... Who's who's that by? uh, Matt Shaw. Oh, oh, Matt Shaw. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. It's a a great story. It's like... uh, you know, any demented man's revenge fantasy. And I want to tell you what it's about. It's not quite what you think. And he actually also makes movies. And I saw his most recent movie recently called, um, it's called Chained. And uh, 
I think it's on Vimeo for like a three or four dollars, but it's worth it. That's the only place that I've seen it is on Vimeo. Okay. But uh, it's it's really it's it's great. I, I my uh, my feeling is that it was made during COVID because there weren't a lot of people in it. Um, but it was it has a you know Matt Shaw throws curves balls like a big league pitcher. It ain't when you think you know what's going on, you don't know squat. Sounds very intriguing, man. Um, also, recently I read uh, Womb by. Duncan Ralston. Yes, yes. I I gotta read. I have to read that man. I keep hearing crazy shit about it. No, it's it's great, and it's a great. Um, it's vignettes in a my kind of motel room. <laughs> uh, what else have I read? I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. I can't think of it right now. Um, I do know that uh, Christine Morgan's next novel is called. Warlock Infernal, which is semi-based on my City Infernal mythos. And it's a, I read got to read that, and it was a blast. It's just outrageous. <laughs> um, it's as outrageous as uh, anything she's written, I think. It's awesome. Yeah, she was, she was really great to talk to, too, man. Oh, she, yeah, I've known her for a long time. She's a wonderful person, wonderful writer. Um. When you were on, that's the first time we got to talk to her on on the show. It's really really nice person. Yeah, and um, what else did I have I read? Um, well, I can't show you because my lighting here is not good. But there, there's a a book called uh, by Evil Cookie. It's an anthology called uh, Counting Bodies Like Sheep, and I'm not I'm not pumping it because i'm in it but i mean there's some stuff in that that's outrageous it's 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 just really it's it's mind-blowing and the last story it's called shits and giggles and it's by a, it's by a woman who i can't forget to remember her name looking old i can't remember her name but the last story is called shits and giggles and i believe the woman said that she used to be a and an ER nurse or something, but this the story is so it's so outrageous and over the top that 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 it blew the top off of my head. It was just really fantastic. But then the whole you know all the whole anthology is good. I think. Um, what else have I read? Uh, Damn, I can't remember. But Evil Cookie's good. doing some wild stuff these days. It's all Their good. anthologies. What's that? I said Evil Cookie's doing some wild stuff. Right oh, yeah. Now. He, he's a great guy. I'm trying to he's look good. up the name. Is it Sarah Budd or Bridget Nelson? Bridget Nelson is the name. Ah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she, she's pretty awesome, too. Yeah, that that's a that's a an outrageous story it's like oh my god it's like a kick in the face it's just great <laughs> and i really like the the kenzie jennings um reception novella or novel yep that was you could taste the human flesh 
Uh, she, she's a hell of a writer. It was being eaten in that in that story. It was mm. great. And there's a bunch of stuff I read that recently, and I uh, I can't remember. Man, that's a lot. That's a lot of good stuff, though. And I also read, you know, every other night I I do read Lovecraft or M.R. James a little bit. Nice. It's got it's it, it's kind of infected my my brain. Yeah, you mentioned Dunwich Horror, Horror way earlier, and that's another one that I really like too, man. It's an excellent story. No, it's fantastic. Um, it's about inter interstellar pregnancy. You know, <laughs> it's a long wait, long time before anyone else did that. Twenties. Yeah, my um. So my wife, when I met her, uh, when she was going to school in Rhode Island College, so she had the three different apartments she lived in were all in Providence, and um. That's when I was starting to get really back into reading. And that's when I started reading Lovecraft for the first time. So it was my early 20s. And um, I, there wasn't a whole lot, but there was different graffiti drawings of Lovecraft. And then I went to East Providence Swan Cemetery. And uh, you did you see Lovecraft's grave? Yeah, I, I took a couple pictures twice there. And I never, I never got to do that. It's the type of cemetery, the way I always phrase it, it's the type of cemetery that I can't die in because I'm not rich enough. It's just, it's. <laughs> oh, really? I, I'm not kidding, man. It's the most beautiful cemetery I've ever been in. It's got like morgues that everything looks super expensive. And I know that he didn't have a lot of money, but I also know that the mother's side did. The, uh, yeah, the, 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 the Phillips. The his grandfather on his mother's side was, was rich. Yeah, was, Whipple Phillips, I think it was. Um, yes, what I can't remember the full name. I just know uh, the first name was weird, and Whipple just stuck with me. But um, I don't know how old he'd be able to afford to live there. I mean, I don't know how much it was back then, but well, me, but uh, you know, Lovecraft for until age thirteen, he was he was a rich kid. Then his grandfather died, and he was piss poor for the rest of his life. That's wild. And um, you know, uh, it's it's un it's unfortunate. But uh, if you just look at the body of work that he produced when he was eat, spending thirteen cents a day on food, it's amazing. <laughs> How do you think he'd react if he were to come back some miraculous way, and he knew exactly had the weight of his influence fall on his face, like just crush him? How do you think he'd respond to that, man? He, he, he 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 might not believe it, but I wish, you know, if I could go back in time, I would tell him, I'd do two things. I'd say, look, Mr. Lovecraft, you got to understand that you're the biggest horror writer in the world after you die. And then I would give him something to, to autograph. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't know if he, he really had a lot of a self-esteem problem. He didn't think his work was any good. I know he burnt his work. Uh, yeah. He burnt a lot of his early stuff. One one time, he uh, a publisher, a hardcover by Scribner's, I think, wrote him a letter. They'd heard about his work and say, "We we understand you're a, a, a notable horror writer. We'd like to do a novel by you." And he said, "Well, I don't have any novels, and if I did, it would be it would, he'd find it inferior." But it, it, sitting in his desk was case of Charles Dexter Ward, one of the best horror novels of its time. 
So he really, he really had a low self-esteem problem. I know his mother was very treated everything very puritanically and didn't show any physical or really any. Oh no, she was she was a horrible bitch, and she was. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, there it is. No, she she, she would not let him go out of the house because she'd say, "Howard, you're too ugly to be seen by the neighbors." Yeah, there's another word I use, but I'm not going to say it because I'm American and uh, that might. Oh, run. she's no, she was that word too, and you know his <laughs> the whole racism thing. Came from her. I'm and sure his two, his two aunts. Yeah, they were, they were hugely, you know, huge Yankee racists, and unfortunately, that rubbed off on him. And because he had a not the greatest childhood, it, it, it took him a long time to get over that. Now he's paying the price. Now he's being crucified. When I know. I'll, I'll dare say that you know he. he you know, Lovecraft didn't hate anybody. He was a nice guy. He didn't hate anybody. And, you know, I, I think I think his racism is, oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I'd say it was exaggerated. No, that's fine. Um, um, you know, people are going to react however they do. I just uh, I, I know that he was changing his opinion uh, as he got older, which is evident in his letters. Um, exactly. You got you got. Uh, if we have time, he, he was friends with um, one of his very close friends was uh, Henry S. Whitehead, who was a he was a minister in uh, in Dunedin, Florida, which I mentioned as a useless aside is about 15 minutes from where I live. And Lovecraft in 1931 went to to visit um, Whitehead and, and Lovecraft described Whitehead as, you know, a man completely you know, bereft of any racism or prejudice. He'd never met anyone who was, who was un, that unracist, that unprejudiced. And, you know, we can be sure that uh, when he, I think Lovecraft was there for, for two weeks and these were conversational dudes. That's what they did. They sat on the porch and talked. And I'm, I'm sure that Reverend Whitehead would took Mr. Lovecraft to school about the racism. Hmm. But um, sure. You know, that's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate. Yes, racism is horrible. I know, but I th I think Lovecraft is getting thrown under the bus a little too hard. Well, he was that's... a nice guy. He was a nice guy. He didn't hate anybody. He didn't bother anybody. And he he uh, he never. You know, a lot of times when we're we're little kids, we pick up racist stuff from adults. And then as we grow older, we, we reject it because we can think for ourselves and we can make up our own minds. But Lovecraft didn't quite have that. He, he was secluded and he didn't have a regular childhood. He didn't get over things the way we would. So I, I think that uh, maybe, you know, we should turn off the hate machine and give Lovecraft a break. Well, yeah, that's the thing about <clears throat> social media where um, it's a lot of definitive statements. There's a lot of very extreme and negative statements made. It's like we don't – I think a lot of those people do not understand its background. I think that they, they don't. don't they don't. I don't think they care, though. And I just think that they're really coming from a, a really negative place. And if the script was flipped on them, they wouldn't like it very much. If they started yeah. having their lives picked apart, they probably wouldn't. Wouldn't like it so much. No, you see, you see a lot of this in these these entertainment journalists who talk about 
how how Lovecraft was a massive racist. Now, they've never read Lovecraft, and they only know that Lovecraft was a racist because the next guy told them. So they're not they're not informed on the subject. Yeah. Yes, Lovecraft had had some racist tendencies. They they, they mellowed out later, and we should forgive him. He's too. You know? he, he's he's on the same tier as uh, Shakespeare. There's no there's no ifs ands or buts about yeah. it. Yeah. Nobody. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was a, a horrible racist. He was like a bristling racist. But nobody's gonna. T- put his feet to the fire because he gave women the right to vote. They're not going to touch him. Dashiell Hammett was a racist. You know, he always had in his books, he had African-Americans were all thieves and gay people were all shifty and women were all ditzes. Right. Now, now, you know, come on. He's just, you're going to crucify him for that. It was different times. And, uh, I think we should stop indicting writers from a hundred years ago or however long ago for, uh, for things like that, because we don't, we don't understand what they went through. And like I said, it's time to turn off the hate machine. My personal take is that there's too many variables. It's a different time. Like there's too many variables in life of this century. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind a hundred years ago, whatever, you know? Man? Exactly. So- yeah. You don't know. Nobody, you don't know the, all the details, all the elements that go into somebody's psycho- psychology. Plus, you know, who, who's to say that if they were to be here nowadays to be exposed to all these walks of life that they wouldn't say, you know what? Yeah, that's a good point. I agree. There's a there's quite a few people I don't like, but I'm guaranteeing that. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Sorry, my mic. I can hear you. Now you're going. Can you talk? Okay, gotcha. There we go. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm still here. Hold up. We got to mark that time. Um, Zoom doesn't have an actual stopwatch, so that's an hour. So it's almost 90 minutes. Okay. All I was going to say is that even the people that I dislike the most, I would still say that there's probably more we agree on than disagree on. Um I don't know. You, you know, some people, a lot of people just have really. Uh, I guess it's, it's we try real hard not to make judgments. You know, I've never walked a mile in somebody else's shoes. So I don't know if he, if I think he's an asshole, maybe I'm being judgmental. Maybe I'm the asshole until I know what he's been through. And, you mm-hmm. know, there's a lot of stuff that Lovecraft went through that was pretty rough. It's child abuse, bottom line. Oh yeah, he was he was he was psychologically abused by his clo- people closest to him. Yeah, I you know uh, from what I've heard, on top of what you just said, I think that he the guy was just he was a shell of himself before he ever became a man. Yeah, he was he was he was terrified to go outside because he thought people would make fun. People did make fun of him. I mean, he was bullied for his whole life, not just as a kid, but for his whole life because you know that. He, you know, he, he, you know, had a kind of a real long face. He had an acne problem. He was tall and he had a real high piping squeaky voice that people made fun of. Hmm. And that sucks to have to, you know, go through life like that. Sure. I mean, and he was also one of the few jobs he had. 
he was a door-to-door salesman. <laughs> I did and not all, know that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. We got fired in the first week. But but uh you know, would you buy <laughs> would you buy a vacuum cleaner from HP Lovecraft with a high squeaking <laughs> voice and all that? No, I would, but I, you know, I, probably he didn't do well in that job. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can see that. And, and people yeah. did people did harass him, and it's it's fucked up. He was bullied his whole life. That is sad. I don't care what anyone says, he got the short end of the stick, but he's still the greatest horror writer ever. That's fair. That's really fair. Uh, Brennan, what are you reading? And top that, by the way, motherfucker, because I can't. <laughs> no, no. I'm just going to pretend it didn't happen, so I don't have to stop it. Um, let's see. Uh, I got a few things because we are not uh, recording a new episode for a few weeks, but uh, I am reading The Hunger by Alma Katsu, who we will be having on later this year. Uh, it is fantastic so far. There's like a three page prologue that is one of the creepiest damn things that I have ever read. Uh, and it takes us right into that, you know, historical horror of uh, kind of surrounding the Donner party. Um, I'm pretty early days in this, but it's she, she's a hell of a writer. She's, I've, I've she's heard of talent. that. I've heard of that book. People have told me good things about it. I, you know, it's my first book by her, and I've just heard such good things about every single thing she puts out. I'm I'm overdue here. You you just um, convinced me. I just bought the audiobook. There you go. <laughs> um, I, I may or may not have been picking up Weird Doom by David J. Scow while you guys were talking earlier. <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, Lee sold you on that. I'm yeah, also if, you want, if you want to know how it's done, just read David Scow. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, in short fiction, that's what I hear. Uh, I'm reading Beautiful Atrocities by Ross Jeffrey. It's his first uh, collection of stories. Ross writes in this very um, raw but poetic manner. And those seem like, you know, different ends of the spectrum. But, you know, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't, you know, like we were saying earlier, he doesn't turn the camera away. But he writes like a poet. There's, there's always this rhythm and beauty to everything he puts in there. Uh, and last but not least... Paradise Sky by Joe R. Lansdale, oh, wow. which is wow. fucking fantastic. I'm 100 pages into this. I love it. Uh, I've heard Joe say that it's probably his favorite book that he's written, and I can see why. It's just, I mean, it's pure Lansdale. I haven't Patrick. read that one, but I'll have to check it out. Yeah, uh, it's it's so. really good. It's uh, it's about the Buffalo Soldiers uh, after the Civil War, um, yeah. and it's it's just, I mean, I can't think of a better way to put it than it's told in a way that only Lansdale can tell it. You know, he's just his voice is just unmatchable. So I got three uh, physical book, uh, Bubba Hotep and uh, Bubba and the Bloodsuckers prequel to Bubba Hotep by Lansdale audiobook. I just finished uh, Ouija Pig earlier today and I started the audiobook of City on Fire by Don Winslow, which is just uh, the Italian and Irish mafia. In New England, it's based off of Don's experience growing up there in Providence in the 80s. So that's, it's, it's a really cool story. I mean, if you like mobster movies, this is it's just very... Um, I could see this being a Scorsese film. Uh, it's really oh, yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really excellent. And then I'm actually going to start reading uh, Brennan's sequel to his debut that I just talked about for a blurb that he asked me for. And I'm really excited about that because uh, 
I have been waiting for him to ask that for a little while. And it mean I'm 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 honored. Yeah, his first one was really good. It was a ghost story, uh paranormal. You know what? That is funny. We didn't talk about that. Uh yeah. it was a paranormal detective team. Well, not detective, paranormal team. Investigators. But yeah, the way that he does it though, like you talked about the equipment, it really worked in yours, but a lot of the times it's kind of goofy the way that some people write it, or it's just they get too bogged down yeah bogged down by all the equipment and you didn't do that with your book either which was awesome but there's a lot of people that kind of tend to do that and um brennan's approach is basically it's these three strangers that become family and they just so happen to have the bond over paranormal investigations and uh i think it's a beautiful story um anything paranormal i love movie or book it's just uh I you know, I, I dig it. I, I wrote this. I wrote that book because it was, you know, just kind of living in my head. But I kind of as I was putting it out, I had a lot of people say, I fucking hate ghost hunter books, you know, just not interested in that. And I was like, well, OK, I wish, you know, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. Um, but uh, I, I feel like it, it, you know, like Patrick said, you know, you kind of pull it off. There's there's an element of it in flesh gothic as well. And it doesn't really, you know, what I found is a lot of people really do hate the like the readings and the, you know, excessive um, explanations of knickknacks and the way that EVP works and stuff like that. And, you know, it's easy to put in to pack in too much technical detail. It's always been a huge flaw of mine because I I don't want to sound uninformed. So I do the opposite research and put in too much and bore the shit out of the reader. But you know, in Ouija Pig, in Ouija Pig, I don't think there was much of that because that's no, that's a no, that's 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 pure smut. That's what it's supposed to be. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun. It's all the lean and mean and fun. Yeah. So, um, you know what? While we're on it, the Devil Tree of Elemental Valence. You said that's the only Western you did. For those that aren't familiar, um, right? With it, it's a short story that I luckily get to. I don't have to do anything with it. It's a reprint, but I luckily get to be the editor of an anthology where that story is going to be in um, for horror Western through death's head press that comes out later this year. We'll talk more about that as the year goes on. But um, do you want to say, say that? Did you say that uh, David Scott was in that? And Yeah, they're in talks. That should, uh, that should be official soon this week. Oh, okay. I hope that's true. And Joe Lansdale, I mean, that, that's that's going to be cool. Yeah. Um, <coughs> yeah, we'll talk about a few things off here, but uh, it's really exciting. Um, but we'll we'll have an episode with with a bunch of us on uh, later on in the year. We'll figure whatever date works for everyone. But yeah, um, let's move on to. Uh, usually, you ask people where can people follow you, but you're not on social media, so. Like, what's the wow. address? No, just kidding. <laughs> that, that's actually been uh, not the answer for most people where I say, where can people follow you? I, I always think someone's going to make a like well, a. Well, I do have, like I said, I do have a, a, a Facebook sort of that. Oh, yeah. Mention that. My but, apologies. But, I, I, you know, I, it's Facebook. I don't can't tell you how to get there. I mean, I guess just look for Edward Lee Facebook. There is another edward lee that pops up it's a chef yeah he's an asian chef so oh, yeah yeah but that guy's pissed off because anytime 
sometimes I look myself up online to see what pictures there are. Yeah. And, and, you know, several bunch of his pictures there, and I'm sure he does the same thing and he sees my old face, but, uh, you know, hell he's, I think he's a a Korean chef who's very famous, (laughs) but, but somebody else, there was another guy on Facebook named Edward Lee. And he said that, uh, it's, it's one of the most common names in the world. Really, I don't know yeah. about that. Which, which I, you know, like because he was he was Chinese, hmm. and uh, so I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of Edward Lee's, a lot of a lot of everything. Is there a reason why you like to be called prefer being called Lee? Well, that's my real first name. My mind's blown. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was Edward. No, no, I've used the pen name since I first started writing because it didn't didn't want my parents to know what I was writing. Uh, So moving on, final thoughts. Lee, what are your final thoughts, sir? Well, I'm mainly grateful to you guys for giving me this opportunity. I'm working on a novella now that's pretty outrageous, I think, and it's called Double Wide. So I'm 16,000 words into it. And uh, at this pace, I'll probably be done soon. It, it's it's really been uh, exhilarating to to find this new creative energy lately. I ain't done yet. That's amazing. Keep keep yes. me updated, man. I definitely want to know when when that's out. Brennan, final thoughts. I wholeheartedly believe that that novella is outrageous. Um, and yeah, I echo Patrick. I, I, it's so cool to hear that you are just in that pendulum swing right now where just everything's, yeah. everything's flowing. I love to hear that. And we are, There's no better feeling for a writer than to be in the groove. Yes. And, you know, uh, I was out of the groove for a while, but I'm still back in it now. So I still got more shit to say. That's nice. awesome. And we would uh, add that, uh, that we're tremendously grateful for your time. Absolutely thrilled that you would choose to spend your Thursday night with us. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, it's always great talking to you guys. Yeah, man, my 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 feelings the same, and definitely gonna have you back. Probably, you know, this as long as it works out, we'll have you back later this year f- with uh, some authors from that uh, anthology. So, sure, more to come. I'd love to do it. That'd be great. Um, yeah, so my final thoughts for Seco Brennan. Appreciate you, Lee. It's always a real pleasure talking to you. And um, listeners, next episode is episode 155. That is titled Meet the Lansdales, where we talk with Joe, his son, Keith, and his daughter, Casey. We'll probably be focused on family, but knowing the Lansdale family, we could be talking about a lot of stuff for a long time. So (laughs) more to come next week with that one. Sounds great. (laughs) Listeners, as usual, many choices podcasts. Thank you for picking us. 